Let's, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 6. In your Bible, the Gospel of John is about 85% of the way through. And it'll go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Our focus today will be John 6, verse 15. However, for the sake of context, we'll begin reading in John 6, verse 1, and then go to verse 15. So let's read this, John chapter 6, starting in verse 1, going to verse 15. The word of God, it says this. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him. Because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, seeing a great multitude coming toward him. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, a number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Then verse 15, our main verse for today. It says, therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. On various topics, I'm sure that our understanding probably isn't where we wish that it was. I'm sure that all of us have things that we wish we just knew better. For example, I wish that I knew how to fix things around the house a lot better than I actually do. There have been far too many times where I've had to call my own father, say, Dad, how do I do this particular thing? Far too many times where I've had to call my father-in-law and ask him how I do this particular thing. Far too many times when I've had to call Brother Dan Totter and say, Dan, how do I do this particular thing that's broken around the house? My understanding of fixing things around the house isn't where I wish that it was. And it's not just with things like fixing things around the house. My understanding on theological topics and issues aren't always where I wish that it was. And it's okay for us as Christians to come to certain theological topics and theological issues and to say, well, you know what? I don't actually know as much about that as I would like, and I need to study that more and more. We know that one of the precious things about the scriptures is that it's so simple that a little child can understand it, and yet at the same time, it is so rich in its depth that somebody can spend their entire lifetime reading it, their entire lifetime studying it, and still not comprehend fully every single thing that's laid out here. Now, in saying that, there are some things, however, that we absolutely must believe in, and there are some things that we absolutely must get right. There are some things, as relating to theology and the study of God and the study of God's word, that we absolutely, 100%, must get right and we must believe in. The way that faithful men have often talked about these various theological topics and various theological issues is by dividing them into three different categories. You have tertiary topics and issues, secondary topics and issues, and primary topics and issues. Tertiary topics and issues would be those things 
that Christians within a given congregation could disagree with one another on and still be members of the same church together. Examples of this would be matters pertaining to eschatology, end times things. There are many in here, members of our church, who would fall into, say, premillennialism. There are others who would be like myself, Pastor Doug and Pastor Bob, amillennialist, and then there are others who would be postmillennialists. But we could disagree and we could still be members of the same church together. Another example of a tertiary issue would be matters pertaining to Christian liberty. We can disagree on whether or not a Christian should celebrate Halloween, and yet, despite our disagreement, we would still be members of the same church together. Then you get into secondary issues. And secondary issues and topics are those things that Christians disagree on, thus causing us to be members of different churches, and yet we still affirm that person as a dear brother or sister in Christ. And from time to time, we could even worship together with this individual. Give you an example, a few examples of secondary topics and issues. This would include things like baptism. Should we practice believer's baptism as we believe, or should we practice infant baptism? Well, somebody who says we should practice infant baptism can't be members of the same church with people who say we should be having believer's baptism. Another example of secondary issue, secondary topic, would be matters pertaining to church government. How should the church be governed? Should it be as we believe, elder-led and congregationally ruled, or should the church be governed, elder-led and elder-ruled? Again, on these secondary issues, we love these people who disagree. We could even worship from time to time with them. We affirm them as dear brothers and sisters in Christ, but we can't be members of the same church together. And then we get into the primary issues, the primary topics. And on the primary issues and primary topics, it's not, well, if we disagree, then we simply can't be members of the same church together. No, on the primary topics and on the primary issues, it's if we disagree, then we are to say to that person who disagrees on these things, you are not even a Christian. Primary topics, primary issues would be things like the doctrine of the Trinity. If somebody says, well, I don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, I don't affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, well, that person is not a Christian. Another primary issue, primary topic would be the gospel. How is it that somebody is made right, declared righteous in the sight of God? Is it justification by faith alone, or is it, as many false religions believe, justification by faith plus works? Well, if somebody says that you're not justified by faith alone, that person is not a Christian. Another primary topic, primary issue, would be the authority and infallibility of the scriptures. Somebody comes to the Bible and says, I don't believe that this is true. I don't believe that this is infallible. Well, then that person is not a Christian. Other primary topics and issues would be things pertaining specifically to the Lord Jesus Christ. The virgin birth. Somebody denies the virgin birth of Christ. That person is not a Christian. Somebody denies the sinless life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That person is not a Christian. Somebody denies the physical resurrection of Christ from the dead. If they look and they say, you know what? I don't think Jesus actually rose physically from the dead. I think he only arose spiritually from the dead. Well, that person then would not be a Christian. Another primary topic, primary issue pertaining to the Lord Jesus Christ would be the fact that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And if somebody disagrees with that, that person is not a Christian. Now, as we think about some of these things, those primary issues and topics that I just listed off, those things that Christians absolutely must believe in in order to be a Christian, we should all look at those things and we should say, okay, I fully believe those, and yet at the same time, I want to grow in my understanding of all of these biblical truths. The doctrine of the Trinity, I believe it, and I want to grow in my understanding of it. The gospel, the fact that I'm justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, I believe that, 
And yet at the same time, I want to grow in my understanding and in my love for it. The fact that Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a perfect, sinless life. The fact that he is fully God and fully man, that he arose physically from the dead. I believe all of those things. And at the same time, I want to grow in my understanding of all of those things. Basically, it comes down to this. We want to have a proper understanding of Yahweh. We want to have a proper understanding of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we want to have a proper understanding of God's Messiah, a proper understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the ways in which we can have a proper view of Christ is by understanding what is known as the threefold office of Jesus or the threefold office of Christ. That was a phrase first coined by John Calvin. And basically what we mean when we say the threefold office of Christ is we mean that Christ fulfills the office of prophet, he fulfills the office of priest, and he fulfills the office of king. And as we're going to see today, we're going to see that people can give off the impression that they have a correct understanding or a belief in that, and yet not really have a true understanding or a true belief in that. Let's quickly recap what's happened in the first 14 verses of John 6. Jesus, he did his famous miracle, arguably his most famous miracle, of feeding the 5,000, which of course we know isn't just feeding 5,000 people, more along the lines of feeding 20,000 people, because the 5,000 as referenced in verse 10, is only including men. So Jesus, he feeds 20,000 people with five barley loaves and two small fish. He does this tremendous miracle. And there's so much bread, so much food left over for them as well that they could even take some. And what John the Apostle is doing in John 6, really in the whole chapter, but specifically the first 14 verses, is he is laying the stage and he is showing us the relationship that exists between Jesus and Moses. He is very purposeful in doing this. At the end of John 5, Jesus, as he's talking to the Jewish authorities, he says to them, he says, if you believe Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote about me. And then between John 5 and John 6, John the apostle, he purposefully skips over significant things, significant things like John the Baptist being beheaded, Significant things like Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, skips over it to show us this relationship. He's establishing the fact that Jesus is the better and greater Moses. And you can understand, as you think about the miracle that Jesus does of feeding 20,000 people with five barley loaves and two small fish, you could probably understand the excitement from the people as Jesus just performs this miracle. They're very excited over seeing it. They're probably very excited over eating the bread. I have no doubt that it was probably the best food that they've ever had in their entire lives. So they're excited regarding that. And they're also excited because they can see the connection being made. They can see the relationship between Moses and Jesus. That this one who's performed this mighty miracle, he is the better and greater Moses. The one spoken about in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 18. Here's what it says there, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Moses says, he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. And in Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. We can know with absolute certainty that they were able to establish the connection because in verse 14, they say, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So there is on some level from the people a recognition that this one, this Jesus, who has just performed this mighty miracle he is very, very special, and he's the one from Deuteronomy chapter 18. You know, it's interesting. Modern Judaism, which is apostate, obviously, but modern Judaism, when it comes to Deuteronomy 18, they look at Deuteronomy 18, 
And they say, well, you know, it seems like Moses is talking about a specific individual who would come in the future. But that's not what he's talking about. Really what he's talking about is just that there will always be other Jewish people around. But that doesn't make any sense. That makes no sense. It's very clear from Deuteronomy 18 that this is referring to somebody very, very special. And it's clear from even the Gospel of John alone that the people were waiting for this prophet from Deuteronomy 18. We saw it in John 1. In John 1, as John the Baptist is growing in popularity and all these people are coming to him wanting to know more about him, the first thing they ask him, they say, are you the prophet? Are you that one from Deuteronomy chapter 18? And here we see, of course, that they were waiting for this one because they're able to establish the connection between Deuteronomy 18 and the Lord Jesus. But then look at our verse for today. Verse 15, it says, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Therefore, or consequently, or as a result of what was just said. This is immediately after what they had just said to Jesus in verse 14. And what does Jesus do? He perceives what they're trying to do, and then he takes a step back. Jesus, once again, is showing us that he knows all things. He knows absolutely everything. This is something that has been so obvious as we've been journeying through the Gospel of John. You saw in John 1, as Jesus is talking to Nathanael, he says that he saw him under the fig tree, showing Nathanael that he knows everything. At the end of John chapter 2, we see that all of these people are coming to Jesus, professing to believe in Jesus, but Jesus, because he knows all things, he does not believe their so-called belief in him. We saw it in John 4 with the Samaritan woman. As Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, he says to her, go and call your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus responds, and he says, that's right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the one that you're with now is not your husband. So he knows everything. But when we talk about Jesus knowing everything, we don't just mean that he knows things like how a computer knows things. It's not what we mean. In the famous words of John Piper, Jesus makes all the information in the universe look like a 1940s farmer's almanac because he knows so much more than we could possibly imagine. He knows what is in the hearts and minds of everybody. He knows that today, by the way. He knows what is in your heart and mind. He knows what is in my heart and in my mind. He knows absolutely everything. He has all knowledge All knowledge is Christ. He knows the intentions and the hearts and minds of everybody. And here we see that he knows what the people's true intentions are. He knows what their true intentions are. He knows the Jewish thinking at this time period, what it was in regards to who their king would be. You see, the Jewish people at this time, they're being oppressed. They're being oppressed by the Romans. And they look at the Romans And they say, the Romans are our big problem. Collectively, as a group, that's what they thought. Individually, that's what they thought as well. They looked at the Romans and said, the Romans are our biggest and main problem. Were the Romans a problem? The answer to that is yes. No doubt about this. The Romans were a problem. The Romans were pretty brutal. Though in comparison to other ancient societies at that time, they weren't as brutal. But nonetheless, they're pretty brutal. You could just read a history book. You could see the brutal things that they would do. You could see the immoral lifestyle that the Romans live. So the Romans are a problem. They're oppressing people of Israel. No doubt about that. But the Romans aren't their biggest problem. Romans aren't their biggest problem. Their biggest problem is sin. Sin was the main issue. Sin was the main problem, but they refused to see it. Allow me to give you an insufficient illustration of what, did it, what this is like, what it's like to look at the Romans and say, you are our biggest problem, rather than looking at sin and saying, sin is my biggest problem. This would be like, you could imagine 
a family driving down the Belt Parkway, a husband, a wife, two or three kids, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, four tires go flat, the car just shuts off, and the hood opens up. And some way, somehow, the husband is able to get the car safely to the side of the road. And he looks at the wife, and he says, honey, I'll take care of the problem. And he looks at the kids, says, kids, I'll take care of the problem. And the wife says, great, my husband is going to do this. The kids say, dad is on the case. And the father gets up out of the car. He goes to the hood. Remember, the hood popped open. And he closes the hood, and then he sits back in the driver's side seat, and he says, problem solved. I fixed the problem. What would the wife and kids say? They would say, you haven't fixed the problem. That's not the main problem. That's an insufficient illustration of what this is like to look at the Romans and say, you're our big problem, when they weren't. And there was no excuse from the people not to realize this. No excuse from the people of Israel not to realize that sin was their biggest problem. They had scriptural warrant that even during a time of intense oppression, scriptural warrant to know that the real issue was and is sin. The book of Judges, which we read from earlier, we read from Judges 10, which we're going to read from right now. But in the book of Judges, there's a phrase that appears a good amount. It appears more often in the book of Ezekiel, but it appears a good amount in the book of Judges. And it's the phrase, you played the harlot. People of Israel, they were going after other gods, and they were committing spiritual adultery. They were spiritually unfaithful. And what's going on in Judges 10 is the people of Israel, they are being oppressed. They're being oppressed by the Philistines and by the Ammonites. And both the Philistines and the Ammonites, they're pretty brutal. The Philistines are brutal. The Ammonites are even worse than the Philistines. We saw it in Amos 1. In Amos 1, it talks about the people of Ammon. And it says that the Ammonites, that they would go around, they would find pregnant women and they would rip open the bellies of pregnant women on purpose. So these are brutal, brutal people who are oppressing the people of Israel. And then listen to this. Judges 10, verse 10. The children of Israel in the midst of oppression says this. It says, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. Somebody could come to that and say, well, they, they were probably just saying that, just saying that to try and get on God's good side. Then in verses 15 and 16, we see true repentance from the children of Israel. It says, and the children of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned, do to us whatever seems best to you, only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. So they had no excuse to not know that sin wasn't their big issue because it was, and yet they don't see it. They don't see it. Why don't they see it? I'm sure all of us can relate to the refusal to come to terms with our own sin. Well, that's what the Jewish people are doing here. They're looking at the Romans saying, you're the big problem. And because of this, they want the Romans gone, and they think that Jesus is the one to do this. A few things to discuss here before we move any further. Let's go back for a second to verse 14. Verse 14, upon Jesus doing this miracle, they say about Jesus, they say, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Was Jesus the prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 18? The answer to that is yes, of course. What's the role of a prophet? Well, in the most general way we could put it, a prophet speaks the words of God to the people. So here is the prophet, the Lord Jesus, who speaks the words of God. But it's not only that Christ would be the prophet who speaks the word of God, but that he literally would be the prophet that is the word of God. We saw this in John 1, verse 1, where it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. If we just think about this, we could see how this makes perfect sense. 
This makes perfect sense. If we are to take the correct position, which is that Jesus is greater than all of those Old Testament prophets who spoke and declared the word of God, well, if we're taking the position that Jesus is so much greater that it makes perfect sense that he would not only declare the word of God, but he literally is the word of God. Christ is the prophet and the subject of all prophecy. Our Baptist Shorter Catechism, it asks the question, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? The answer given is this. Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to his people by his word and spirit the will of God for their salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ, he is the ultimate spokesman for God. And the Lord Jesus, he fulfills the office of prophet. Back to our text here. John 6, verse 14, I want us to know something that we see in the text. I want us to know this today, and that's this. Somebody can use adverbs such as truly, which is what the people do here. This is truly the prophet. They could use adverbs and yet still not believe it or have any idea what that actually means. Of course, we all know this. Of course, we've all experienced situations where maybe you're talking to somebody and the person says that they're a Christian and they maybe don't just say they're a Christian. They say, well, I'm really, really a Christian. I don't just love Jesus. I really, really and truly love Jesus. Then you start talking to them. Turns out they have no love for the people of God, no desire to be with with the people of God, to be in Christ's church, to worship Christ on the Lord's day. And yet they say, well, I'm really, really, and truly, truly a Christian. Well, just because you put an adverb before it doesn't mean anything. And here are the people, they don't have the correct understanding, the correct belief in who the Lord Jesus Christ is. But what we can see in verse 14 and in verse 15, we can see the obvious connection being made that the people... They knew that the prophet from Deuteronomy 18 would be the Messiah and he would also be the king. You can see the connection. Hence why in verse 15 we see what it says. We see that it says that they want to take Jesus by force and make him king. So there was a connection. The people knew, well, this prophet from Deuteronomy 18 would be the king, would be the king Messiah. But Jesus departs because he knows. He knows what it is that they're looking for. He knows that they're looking for a political king and ruler. The people's thinking is primarily on physical things rather than on spiritual things. Imagine the excitement over the Lord Jesus. Just imagine the excitement over Jesus in this moment. I'm sure that these people, we're going to see later on in John 6, they go away from Jesus. But I'm sure that many of them throughout the course of the rest of their lives, they probably said, man, if I could only get that excitement back, If I could only get that excitement back that I had when I saw Jesus perform this miracle, that was the best excitement ever. But it wasn't a God-glorifying excitement because it wasn't in line with the reality of who Jesus is. And the Lord Jesus Christ, he will not bow down to what sinful man wants him to be. He will not bow down to a view of him as king that is incorrect. He won't do that. You know what else we see here? we see that Jesus is not a charlatan. Jesus is not a charlatan. If he was a charlatan, well, he would have gone right along with the plan here. What is it that charlatans want? What is it that charlatans want more than anything? They want to be famous. That's what charlatans want. Well, if Jesus was a charlatan, he would have said, yeah, let's go do this. Let's go and make me king. A charlatan would have looked at this and said, This is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I have 20,000 people who will make me king by force. But, of course, Jesus is not a charlatan. Is this situation starting to remind you of another situation that the Lord Jesus had to endure? It reminds me of what happened when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness right after he was baptized. In Matthew chapter 4... Jesus, he's led out into the wilderness by the Spirit, and he's fasting for 40 days, 40 nights, and he's hungry. And then Satan comes, 
and Satan comes to tempt the Lord Jesus. And he tempts him three times. First time he says to Jesus, he says, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Tempting Jesus to do a miracle for a self-serving purpose. But Jesus doesn't give in to that temptation. Second time Satan tempts Jesus, he takes the Lord Jesus up on the pinnacle of the temple and he says to Jesus, he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then he falsely quotes scripture, says, for he shall give his angels charge over you, falsely applying the scripture, tempting Jesus to be prideful, but Jesus doesn't give in to the temptation. And then the third temptation, here's what happens. It says, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Tempting Jesus to avoid the cross, tempting Jesus to take the easy way out, tempting Jesus to do Satan's will rather than the will of his father. And then verse 10, we see this awesome response from Jesus in Matthew 4. He says, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The way I picture Matthew chapter 4, which perhaps is the way that you picture it as well, is that the first two temptations, Jesus, he responds firmly but calmly as well. But then this third temptation, this temptation to avoid the cross, this temptation to take the easy way out, Jesus responds with righteous anger, righteous indignation. The mere thought of avoiding the cross, he said, Get out of here, Satan. Get out of here. Notice the similarity in what takes place in Matthew 4 and here in John 6, verse 15. Notice the similarity first in the arrogance behind Satan and the arrogance of these people here in John 6. In Matthew 4, verse 9, Satan says this to Jesus. He says, I will give you this, referring to the kingdoms of the world, says, I will give you this if you worship me. As if Satan has any real authority over the Son of God. He doesn't. John Gill, commenting on Matthew 4, verse 9, he said this. He said, never was such monstrous arrogance expressed as this. This wretched creature has not the disposal at his pleasure of any one single thing. No, not the least in the whole universe. He can do nothing without divine permission. Yet he had the front or the audacity to make an offer of the whole world as if he had a despotic power over it. Absolutely arrogant. And the people here in John 6, verse 15, they show their arrogance as well. Their arrogance in the sense that they think that they could take the Son of God by force and force him to do something that he doesn't want to do. Or... As if Christ, if this is what he wanted to do, if he did want to go and set up an earthly kingdom right then and there, as if he would have even needed their help to do it. He wouldn't have needed their help. Of course, we know this. We all know this. We know you can put Jesus on this side, and you can put every single person who's ever existed on the other side. And everybody on this side, all the people who have ever existed, they will have a 0% chance of beating Jesus. So it's pure arrogance from these people to do this. We also see, secondly, the similarity in that the main temptation in both accounts is the temptation to avoid the cross and the temptation to take the easy way out. But Jesus does not succumb to the temptation. Quick note on this, and I want to mention this because this is something that used to confuse me, so perhaps it's something that may be confusing to you as well. But when we talk about Christ being tempted, we often quote Hebrews chapter 4, which says that he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin, which is a great verse. But then from that, so many of us conclude sinfully, and we say, well, that must mean that my own sinful desires are perfectly fine because Christ was tempted with these own sinful desires internally as well. But no. When the Bible says that Christ was tempted, it means externally speaking. So he was tempted 
by others to sin, and he overcame those temptations. But Jesus was never tempted internally from his own sinful desire because he wasn't as perfect. So thus he doesn't have any sinful desires. So in both Matthew 4 and here, Jesus is being tempted externally. He's being tempted from outside of himself to sin. But he doesn't give in to it. Now, does that mean, with all that in mind, that Jesus wasn't tempted internally, but he was tempted externally? Does that mean that Christ's temptation was insignificant? Of course not. That's not what it means. All the temptations that Christ had to endure were very, very significant. In fact, I'm of the opinion that nobody was ever externally tempted as Jesus was. An external temptation is a real temptation. In the Old Testament, there are, well, many examples of people being externally tempted. You think of David. David, he goes up on his rooftop and he sees Bathsheba. And what does he do? Well, he ends up giving in to that external temptation. Now, of course, David was born with a sinful nature. But if you go back to the Garden of Eden and you think of Adam, this is where Adam failed. Adam wasn't created with a sinful nature. And yet, what did he do? Well, he gave in to the external temptation. He gave in to the temptation that arose from outside of himself. But Jesus, the better Adam, he succeeded where Adam failed. And so we see the external temptation here, the external temptation to avoid the cross, to take the easy way out, it arises not internally from Jesus, but externally from others who want him to give in. Something else that we see here in Jesus not giving in to the temptation to avoid the cross, we see that Jesus knew without any shadow of a doubt what his mission was. He knew with complete and absolute certainty what his mission was, that his mission was to save sinners, not to come here the first time he came and to set up an earthly kingdom. No, his mission in coming here the first time was to save sinners. We know that when he stood before Pilate, Pilate asked him, he said, are you a king? And Jesus said, yes. And then what did he say? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, I do want to clarify, because one day Christ will come back, and he will set up an earthly kingdom, and we long for that day, of course. We can't wait for that day. We know that that day is coming, and that day is coming soon, but obviously that day hasn't happened yet. Christ hasn't set up his earthly kingdom yet. But nevertheless, and make no mistake about this, Jesus is ruling and reigning right now as king. He's ruling and reigning right now at this very second king of the universe. How do we know that? We can just look and we see that the gospel is going out and conquering. Christ is subduing his enemies either by the mighty scepter of his wrath or the mighty scepter of his grace. He's ruling and defending his church. You want the best evidence that Christ is king ruling and reigning? Just look at the fact that the church is still here. The church is still prospering. Jesus is conquering, taking vengeance on his enemies. And when he comes back, the fullness, we could say, of his kingdom will be complete. His enemies will be conclusively and finally defeated. The gospel will conclusively, finally have gone forth. And yes, now during this time of his reign and rule, there's immense opposition to it. Immense opposition to his rule and reign. But nevertheless, he's still reigning and still ruling in the midst of his enemies. And one day, very, very soon, he will come back and set up that physical earthly kingdom. Here in John 6, the people want him to set up that physical earthly kingdom right then and there. Again, their whole thinking, the people's whole thinking is the Romans are the enemy. The Romans are the main problem. Let's conquer them and then we could have this physical earthly kingdom of the Messiah right now. So we've seen thus far that these people, they have no biblical understanding of what it truly meant that the Messiah would be the prophet and the king. And they also had no understanding that the Messiah would be the great high priest. They literally had zero understanding of this. As you make your way through the Gospels, there are instances, some of which we've 
already touched on, instances, and you can actually see it here in verses 14 and 15 of John 6, where it's very obvious that the people thought that the Messiah would be both the prophet and the king. But there's no indication during the life and ministry of Jesus that they knew that the Messiah would be the great high priest. No indication that they knew that. Which I guess makes sense when you think about it because they don't think that sin is their big issue. So why would they be in need of a great high priest? What's the role of a priest? We know that a priest, he intercedes for his people. We get a great glimpse of Jesus as the believer's great high priest in John chapter 17 when he's praying for us. We know he's doing that right now for his people, interceding for us. Also, the role of a priest is to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. But you see, Jesus, he didn't just come here to offer up any old sacrifice. No, he came here to offer himself as a once-for-all sacrifice. We see the similarity between Christ as prophet and Christ as priest. Christ is the prophet who declares the word of God, but he literally is the word of God as well. And Christ is a great high priest who came to offer a sacrifice, but he literally is the sacrifice. And in offering up himself as a sacrifice on the cross, what did he do? Well, he satisfied the divine justice of God. Now, of course, at this point here in John 6, that hasn't happened yet. That hasn't happened. But nevertheless, this was his task. And the desire from the people to take Jesus by force and to make him king, well, it undermines the fact that he's the great high priest because his mission was to go and be the sacrifice that all of the priests in the Old Testament were pointing forward to. You see, they missed it. They missed that the Messiah would be the great high priest. And there was no excuse to miss it because it's not like the Old Testament was silent about this. The Old Testament wasn't silent that the Messiah would be the great high priest. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, we are introduced to the high priest of the time, a man by the name of Eli. And Eli, he's an okay priest, but Eli is doing something that God hates. And parents in the room, listen, because God hates this. What Eli is doing is Eli is refusing to discipline his children. His children are running amok, and God hated it. And what does God do? Well, he takes the priesthood away from Eli because Eli essentially forfeited it because he wasn't obeying God. He wasn't disciplining his children. But then God says this. He says this great promise of a coming priest. He says, 1 Samuel 2, verse 35, says, Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. There are some who would come to 1 Samuel 2, verse 35, and say, well, that was fulfilled in Zadok. Zadok would ascend to be the high priest in 1 Kings during the reign of Solomon. And Zadok was a very good high priest. But that verse there in 1 Samuel 2, verse 35, can't only be about Zadok. Can't possibly be just about Zadok. Zadok may be a near fulfillment of it, but ultimately it's pointing forward to Christ. God says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do what's in my heart and in my mind. Who's that talking about? It's talking about Jesus. He says, I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed, before my people forever. He'll go in and out before my people forever. It's referring to Jesus, the one who truly fulfills the office of priest. As we end here, I want to emphasize this point again. I want to emphasize that this is something that we should desire to get right. We should desire to have a proper view of who Christ is. We should desire to have a proper view of who Christ is as prophet, priest, and king. We don't want to have a wrong view of Christ as prophet as the people have here in John 6. We don't want to have a wrong view of Christ as king as the people have here in John 6. Don't want to have a wrong view as Christ as priest, which the people have absolutely no idea about that. 
No, we want to have a correct understanding of who Jesus is. There's no doubt about this, that as these people here in John 6, they see Jesus do this. They're so excited. They want to make him king. And they thought that he would be a good king. Maybe even slightly better overall than all of the other good kings. You know, they would have done what we do. What do we do? We look at the rulers of our country and we look at rulers of other countries and we say, I wish that that guy could be the ruler here. I wish that guy could be the president here. People of Israel, they would have done those same things. They would have looked at rulers at other places and said, I wish that person could be ruler here. Things would be better. And they were looking at Jesus and said, well, you know what? Jesus would be even better than that guy that we were just talking about that we would wish he was our king. Maybe Jesus will be even a little bit more special than that one. But that doesn't even begin to give justice to just how special this one, this Jesus, who fulfills all three offices, a prophet, priest, and king is. This is something that sets Jesus apart from all the others, that he fulfills all three offices. There are some in the Old Testament that fulfill two of these offices. There are a few. I'll give you some. Uh, Moses, he fulfills the office of prophet and priest. David, he fulfills the office of king and prophet. But nobody, aside from the Lord Jesus Christ, has ever fulfilled all three offices, prophet, priest, and king. What's the application here? What's the application to Christ being our prophet, priest, and king? Is this just some mindless theology that has no application? Of course, the answer to that is no. Our theology is always applicable to us. Christ being our prophet, priest, and king has tremendous application for every single person in here. Has tremendous application for family life. In that, in families, husbands, I want to talk to you right now. You are to be the prophet, priest, and king of your family. What do I mean by that? As a prophet, you are the one that is responsible before God to declare the word of God to your family. You are to open up the Bible to read and study the word of God with your family. That's what you are to do. Husbands, you are to be the priest of your family. You are the one that is responsible for sacrificing for your family, even if it means sacrificing to the point of death. You are also the one that is to intercede for your family. You are the one that is to be constantly praying for your family. And you are the one who is to be king of your family. And what I mean by that is obviously not that you are to be this authoritative dictator who just rules with an iron fist. No, you're to be king of your family like Christ is king. You are to be so gentle, so loving, so kind, so merciful, so gracious with your wife and children that your wife and children wake up every single day and they say, God, thank you for bringing this man here. Where your wife says, God, thank you for bringing me, this man, to be my husband. Where your children say, God, thank you for making this man my father. Wives in here, you are to submit to your husbands as prophet, priest, and king, the family. Just like the church submits to Christ as our prophet, priest, and king. So we see the application there in family life. But we also see the application for every single Christian who has ever existed. And I'll read to you the Heidelberg Catechism. Heidelberg Catechism is a catechism that was developed in the 1560s. And the question is asked, one of the questions in the catechism, asks the question, why are you a Christian? And the answer given is an answer that relates to the threefold office of Christ. It says, I am a Christian so that I may confess his name. We confess his name as prophets. It says, I am a Christian so I can present myself a living sacrifice. Present myself a living sacrifice as a priest. And I am a Christian so I may fight against sin and Satan. And now and afterward begin and reign with Christ forever as king. So we see the application for every facet of life. Christ being our prophet, priest, and king. Jesus, that's who he is. He's our prophet, 
He's our priest. He's our king. And he will not acquiesce or bow the knee to those who want to distort what that means. And there ought to be a desire from every single Christian to know him better. There ought to be a desire from every single Christian to say, Christ is my prophet, priest, and king. And I want to grow in my knowledge and in my love for him. There is a really, really big problem if we start to say, well, I've been a Christian for 10 years and I'm not growing in my understanding and in my love for Christ. No, we want to grow every single day in our love and in our understanding for Christ. One of the ways we could do that is by looking at Christ and rejoicing in the fact that he is our prophet, priest, and king. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, the one who is our prophet, our priest, and our king. We thank you, God, that you sent Jesus. We thank you that he never succumbed to any temptation. We thank you, God, that he didn't want to take the easy way out. We thank you, Father, that he didn't avoid the cross, but that he went there to satisfy your wrath that we deserve for our sins. God, we're so thankful for your son. We're so thankful for the Lord Jesus. God, we pray that we wouldn't take Jesus for granted. We pray, God, that there would be a desire in us to grow in our love and in our understanding of who he is. God, we pray, of course, for those in here who haven't yet been born again by your grace. Those in here who aren't yet reconciled to you by faith in your son. We pray, God, that you would bless your word and that you would do a mighty work in the hearts of those who haven't believed yet. And we ask, Lord, that you would cause them this day to be born again. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.